and welcome to episode 12 of Cinema. And uh, I'm back, uh, continuing the, the thread, basically, the verbal thread and thoughts of, of remakes. And we've touched on that in both episode 8 and going forward, even up to with uh, Friday the 13th in, in my last episode, episode 11. And, and, and of course, we, the big thing people talk about is, is you know, are remakes inherently bad or, or are they cynical and, and all of that? And the answer is no. Uh, you, you can have a great remake, and, and we've talked about a number of those in previous episodes, whether it's uh, True Grit, uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers with Donald Sutherland and Jeff Goldblum and, and Veronica Cartwright, etc. Uh, you, you can have good ones. There, there is no doubt about it. And the one thing that I, I wanted to focus on, which I, I talked about in, in my last episode, was what happens when a remake is made, and, and, and overall, that the quality is good. Like, let's say it has a great cast, great special effects, um, you know, good production value. It's it's not that somebody set out to make something bad. It's not Jaws the Revenge. <laughs> However, what happens when a remake is made and it, it just has nothing to say? And this builds on what I was talking about with a movie's time. And the time of its release, the decade, the the events that are happening around, and, and we covered this in in the last episode uh, with the, with the Carter years versus the Reagan years uh, with Friday the Thirteenth, and and the weird mix of of conservative and liberal and and all of that, uh, which which really defined Friday the Thirteenth in the slasher genre. So so what happens when a time of the rem- of the remakes release? is totally devoid of, of any type of historical context. And before you think, well, that has nothing to do with it. It has everything to do with it. So before I get into all of this, uh, we're going to use the film Fright Night, both Tom Holland's 1985 masterpiece, uh, which basically resurrected the vampire movie in Hollywood. The remake of Fright Night is, is extremely well made. The problem is it has absolutely nothing to say. So... Remaking a film sometimes comes under the old adage of of just because you can doesn't really mean you should. Before we get into all of that, let me give you a little historical context and and bear with me. Fright Night, when it came out in in August of 1985, I I was working as an usher um, at the movie theater. As a matter of fact, I just got promoted to an assistant manager position after working there for almost two years as a kid in high school. And I had just graduated high school in June of 1985, and and Fright Night came out in August of 85. Really, nobody expected this movie to make any money. It was was considered an end-of-the-summer dog, that they were just going to throw it out. And uh, it it might make a few bucks, but it would quickly disappear and end up on video. And I remember we opened it in our smallest theater, which was theater number seven. It was a fucking really good movie. And suddenly, within days, that movie was up in our biggest house, our 500-seat theater. So Fright Night took everyone by surprise and kind of closed out the summer of 1985 with with a real financial punch. And what was neat about it was, in watching Fright Night, I felt really sad and a little maudlin because Fright Night is not so much a horror film as it is really a, a Valentine and, and almost a swan song to an era that was that was terminally ill at that point and, and dying. So here's a little bit of the personal historical context. I was 17 years old, uh, just about to turn 18 in September, and 
I was dating who I considered the most beautiful girl that I, I ever dated in my life. And uh, I was about to lose my virginity to this girl. And this moment of Fright Night was so strong. I wrote about this uh, in the book, my favorite horror film. I was interviewed as one of the horror filmmakers and I posted about Fright Night. Although I will say the guy who wrote about Beaches was a genius. If you get a chance to pick that up by Christian Ackerman, uh, take a look. It's it's a compilation of, um, of, of horror filmmakers talking about what horror movies influence them. And I chose Frightening, and it's not going to turn into a porn episode. But simply, I was with this girl, and we both appreciated the old school horror. We loved old Christopher Lee movies with Peter Cushing, and we loved Bela Lugosi, and we most of all loved creature features. We loved those late night horror movie hosts. In our area, we had a guy named Uncle Ted, and then there was Dr. Shock in Philadelphia, and I grew up on these guys. Watching Fright Night really hit a, a personal button with all of us, with both of us. And uh, like I said, it, it kind of made us a little sad because Peter Vincent really represents the entire era of, of old school horror filmmaking that, that was going away. And where was it going? Well, the VCR was killing it. Cable was killing it. Streaming and the internet was still far off. However, cable and, and video, home video, were killing the, the local channel markets and all those old horror films that you grew up watching late at night or on a Saturday afternoon. They were going to video and, and TV was just no longer dedicating their time to these people. And, and that's Peter Vincent's problem in the film. He's being phased out. And he says it best, at that time the vampire movie was on its way out and, and the slasher movie was in. And, and he laments this when he yells at Charlie Brewster in the parking lot of the TV studio after just being fired that nobody wants to see vampires or vampire killers anymore. They, they just want to see demented men in ski masks hacking up young virgins. I proposed to this girl in Fright Night. I had her ring, which by the way, I spent a school scholarship on. And I bought her a diamond engagement ring and put it in her popcorn cup and uh, proposed to her right at the end of Fright Night in the movie theater. You see, the cool part was I had the keys to the theater. So I could thread up Fright Night and we had the whole movie theater to ourselves after hours. So there was a lot of fun makeout action. And I also got engaged in that theater. I did not lose my virginity in theater number seven, of Stroud Mall Cinemas, that's on record. The other part of this is I grew up with my grandmother, which my first film, The Fields, is all about. I grew up with her watching all these great old horror films, especially the Hammer films and, and Dracula with Christopher Lee, like I said, and Peter Cushing. And, and I just loved it. I used to love watching the CBS late night movie where they aired a number of these films all the time. And and I had such fond, warm memories. And I knew what it was like for Charlie to love Fright Night on TV. So for me, I got it. And this girl I was engaged to, eventually got engaged to, who I never did end up marrying, um, she got it too. And we loved all the lines. We loved the cheesiness that that Tom Holland was underscoring, that he so fondly remembered and and he, we love the, you know, and I have always won. Like, we got it. It was like this movie was speaking to us. And that's because this movie came out at a time 
in the middle of the 80s where everything was changing. And while I talked about the political climate of, of Friday the 13th, that so much didn't affect Fright Night and its success as it was an ode to a time that was passing by. And I think a lot of people got that. It was the close of the local horror film host and most of all the end of, of local stations broadcasting the, the creepy, scary movies late at night or on Saturday afternoons. I've already told Tom Holland how much I love Fright Night and it's in my top five films and I'm looking at right now in my office an autographed copy of, of the Blu-ray DVD. So that's how much the film means to me. And I, I can't say how important it was in my career because Tom Holland's Fright Night, also his Psycho 2, the script for Psycho 2, greatly influenced me as an up-and-coming horror filmmaker. I mean, now you have like, you know, comments that pass off as reviews online, whether it's on Netflix or IMDb or Amazon or Hulu. And, and these comments are dotted with phrases like, the film is old or it's dated. Better yet, I love when people say it's foreign. They didn't want to read subtitles, which I, I just never understood. All of these signify a concern in American pop culture, and that is a fixation on the superficial and a refusal to give anything deemed old, and I put that in quotes, a chance. The concept of dated is ridiculous. Of course, something is dated. The Godfather is dated because it takes place during the World War II era. Uh, of course, Jaws is dated. It takes place in 1975. But does that mean that you dismiss it? Are, are we really truly a, a Pepsi generation for, for those who think young? What is wrong with something that not only is older, but is a time capsule of that time, that historical time when it was released? Horror is a breeding ground for remakes, but the focus of, of this podcast is, is going to be, again, it's going to be Fright Night, the 1985 Fright Night and its, and its remake. There is nothing inherently wrong with a remake if it's done for the right reasons. And, and some of these reasons could be if the first film had incredible potential, but it couldn't be realized because of budget restrictions or even technological limitations. That decision to remake a film needs to be made carefully. Think about it. They remade King Kong, which was a stop motion original. A tiny model was animated, which thrilled millions and saved RKO Studios and became a, an American legend. And without Kong, there would have been no Godzilla. And yet when we remade it in 76, it was a guy in a monkey suit. Now that was a Rick Baker monkey suit and it was damn good. Think about that. It wasn't like there was some huge technological advance. In fact, we were using suitmation, which the Godzilla films have been doing since 1954. But I like the new Fright Night with Colin Farrell. Look, again, cinema is not about liking something. Everyone has their own taste, and, and this is not what I'm debating. One of the principal pieces of, of my blog and, and this podcast is that while the original 1985 Fright Night endured all these years to become a remake, the remake itself will not be remembered with the affinity of the original. Who's going to remember the Colin Farrell film 35 years from now? To be clear, I, I didn't find the remake to be a quote-unquote bad movie. It, it simply was a needless one, and there was no need to affix the title Fright Night to it. They took it so far off the rails, it had nothing to do with Fright Night. Fright Night, the title itself, is the name of Peter Vincent's horror late-night local broadcast show. In the remake, 
It's something entirely different and it means nothing to us. We're going to see the same thing with the 1998 Godzilla. And you know, had they just given that movie a different title, a lot of the issues could have been more forgiven. The 1998 Godzilla was not Godzilla. It it was more akin to the beast from 20,000 Fathoms. and, And the 2011 Fright Night was more like Rear Window with vampires and and not much else. Look at the posters for the remake of Fright Night and the original Fright Night. And and the posters themselves evoke not just two different films, but also they they evoke a different tone and and relevance. The the poster for the remake evokes Twilight, the angst-ridden youth on a mission with the androgynous vampire looming over. That's the remake poster. It's style over substance. The 1985 poster brings to mind a bizarre kind of carnival feel. And and oddly enough, a a sense of fun. The the clown-like vampire or vampiress and and the demonic shapes it takes on all flowing from the house across the street with the silhouette watching everything. I mean, both represent two distinct times, but only one is true to the nature of its title. and, And that's the 1985 one. Horror is one of the purest of genres. It works best when it is honest. It falls flat when it has an agenda. Tom Holland's beautifully written and directed 1985 film is a loving tribute, as I said, to the era of old vampire films with Christopher Lee and Bela Lugosi. In a wider sense, every schlocky creature feature that entertained generations on Saturday afternoon, these creature feature TV shows were the bomb. Holland deftly handled the screenwriting for the 1983 Psycho 2, which was easily one of the best sequels ever made and deliciously realized in Holland's brilliant script. Psycho 2 was a huge influence on me for Camp Dread. Camp Dread owes more to Psycho 2 than it does the slasher film or anything from Friday the 13th or even Sleepaway Camp. Holland's Fright Night reminds us of the cheesy hosts of these shows all around America. Like there there was Zachary and Dr. Shock, like I said, and Uncle Ted and Vampira. And and the list just goes on. I, I probably every small town with a cable station across America had somebody like this. However, back in the day, these were folks who had day jobs. But once a week, they put on some monster makeup, stood on a badly lit local set and had fun with us during the commercial breaks of really bad B movies and sometimes not bad B-movies. They just had fun with us. And that is a huge element that is missing from the remake of Fright Night. Fun. By the summer of 1985, those days of old horror hosts and, and, and fun creature features, they were already in the rearview mirror, as, as I said, as the VCR and cable had pretty much wiped out all those old-time shows, and people now could choose their programming. Fright Night's success resurrected the vampire film, and and as I said at the start of this, literally without Fright Night, there would never have been a Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and there would have been no Twilight, which I don't know if that would be a bad thing. And no one, again, I was there, I saw it, no one expected Fright Night to be a hit. It was tossed out in the dog days of August as an end of summer throwaway, after, you know, films like Back to the Future and Weird Science and, and Mad Max Thunderdome tore it all up. Within a week, Fright Night moved from the smallest to the biggest houses and multiplexes. And by that fall, it was the number one horror film shown on college campuses around the United States. And I know this because I also saw it at Penn State that fall. And I road tripped to Bloomsburg and talked with others who were catching it as a college night fright flick. 
I went there with a carload of people just to see Fright Night because people didn't believe it was that good and it would be a lot of fun. You know, thinking about it, when when I brought up Peter Vincent's quote about nobody wants to see vampires or vampire killers anymore, and, and he says that everybody wants to see slashers, psycho slashers, you know, the second part of that quote could be amended today to include sparkling vampires, CGI monsters, uh, running zombies, sadistic doctors, and inbred hillbillies. People who watch the 1985 Fright Night often say to me, I don't get it. It was dumb. It didn't make sense. All right, look. Jerry Dandridge is a vampire. He kills people. Charlie Brewster lives next door. He finds out. No one believes him. And he gets Peter Vincent to help him dispatch the vampire. What the hell isn't there to get? The real problem, what these people don't get, are all the nods to the previous horror films because they never fucking saw those films. And they have no point of reference. For this new generation, and I sound like Peter Vincent here, the closest they come to clever referencing is Scream. And you know why they didn't see those horror films? Because they're old. All right, so let's do something a little new here on cinema. Let's let's do a little Q&A time. Here are some actual questions I got from people I recommended Fright Night to watch. All of these people are 25 years old and under. Okay, so everybody that made these questions that gave me these questions were either 25 or under 25. So here's the first question. So like, why is this kid watching all these old horror movies and why does he like them so much? And so my answer was in the days before texting, IM, Xbox and Warcraft and everything else in Fortnite, there were things called three channels, basic cable and your imagination. People also watched old movies because Hollywood had not really caught on to the cynical idea of recycling the same stories with slicked up newer versions to fool you. I mean, that's what they're doing now with Marvel, right? It doesn't matter who the hell plays Spider-Man. They're just going to swap these people out and you're just going to get a new Spider-Man reboot every so often with some other actor and that actor will be the flavor of, of the franchise for a little and then they'll move on. It doesn't matter anymore. That's pretty cynical. So here's another question. The vampire seemed gay to me. Why was he dressed like some 80s model? Here's my answer. And sparkling, feminine, shirtless, underwear model vampires who are prettier than their female counterparts are any better? Throughout vampire lore, the vampire's sexuality has always been a blur. Dracula hints at homosexuality as well. Whether male or lesbian attraction, vampires are dead from the waist down. Intercourse for them is feeding. Fucking is feeding for a vampire. The exchange of fluids for a vampire is a transfusion. And this goes back to the earliest vampire tales. But you see, you wouldn't know this if you didn't watch all those old vampire films or anything else other than Twilight. You know, there is more out there than that. And now I feel like I have to chase some kids off my lawn. Oh yeah. And it also takes place in 1985, hence the vampire's 80s fashion. Not to mention vampires are almost always fashion plates, except for those animalistic brutes like in 30 Days of Night or something like that. But vampires pride themselves on their wardrobe. They're sophisticated motherfuckers. They actually have culture. So here's another question. So why does that girl Amy, why, why does her hair get suddenly long after she is bit and then it goes back to normal when they kill the vampire? Again, if you haven't seen any of the old Hammer films or anything like that, 
like Brides of Dracula, Dracula, Prince of Darkness, Terror of Dracula, the female victims are usually sexually repressed conservative British types who literally never let their hair down. They're these uptight women and the vampire liberates them. Again, feeding is fucking. So when they bite into these women, it releases something in them. They're, they're actually getting an orgasm and it transforms them from their boring, tight-ass British mates. They have these boring fiancés and lead stuffy, boring lives. Then along comes that sexy undead counter vampire who shakes things up a little bit and does a little tooth sex romp on her neck. And before you can say Twilight, that woman is liberated. This transformation was usually shown by an increase in the woman's bust line. Suddenly she had breasts where they weren't there before or they were just literally pushed down and, and pushed against her body. And her hair was not only down, it seemed to gain inches in length overnight. It's a stylistic choice by the director. It's not a continuity error. And it became a hallmark of those old-time horror films. When the vampire was killed, things went back to normal. Folks, it's intentional. And if you haven't seen any of these old horror films, you're not going to get it. That's why the time a movie comes out, its context, its historical context is imperative. So naturally, the next question is, well, what do you mean Hammer Films? What's that? Hammer was and still is a British film studio which put out unique spins on old horror material and basically created a whole new subgenre in horror that was built around grand old actors like Christopher Lee and Vincent Price and Peter Cushing. Many consider Christopher Lee's portrayal of Count Dracula superior to Bela Lugosi's. They brought color to it all. Big, lavish, saturated colors and reds. And that's what I remember as a kid watching these movies that, man, when they staked those vampires in their coffins, that blood was red. So it was really cool to see what Hammer did. They had their own look and their own feel. You knew a Hammer film just by looking at it. Roddy McDowell's character, Peter Vincent, in 1985's Fright Night, is a play on words from the old Hammer days. It's a combination of Peter Cushing and Vincent Price. And of course, if you never saw any of those films, then you wouldn't know that. Peter from Peter Cushing, Vincent Price of Vincent Price, put them together like a Reese's cup, and you got Peter Vincent. There are plenty more, but, but hopefully you get the point. The simple fact is that 1985's Fright Night was meant to be a fun tribute for people who remembered a better time in their entertainment. Its tagline makes this point clear. If you love being scared, it'll be the night of your life. Roddy McDowell's performance as Peter Vincent is nothing less than fantastic. From, from the deliberately bad gray stage hair coloring to his over-the-top I am Peter Vincent vampire killer. And, and that's a nod to Roman Polanski's vampire misfire, the fearless vampire killers. McDowell's unique British accent, his meek yet dignified manner, give credence to his broken horror movie star. Vincent now has to slum on late night local cable, hosting his own films, having his face rubbed nightly into the fact that his best days are now behind him, and yet transforms into a genuine hero when he's forced to confront Jerry Dandridge, the real vampire. Billy Ragsdale's Charlie Brewster is your average nice guy, and he's intentionally a little boring. He's a direct nod to the Jonathan Harker-style male lead of previous films who, in the end, has to man up and inject a little daring do into his life to save his woman from the dangerous yet exciting vampire. 
Charlie is boring, white bread suburbia. And his girlfriend, I mean, Amy, they they have a relationship. She loves him, but let's face it, it's not exactly like fireworks are happening between the two. And and Charlie's going to have to change some things up. And, and in some ways, Jerry's going to force him to do that. And speaking of Charlie's girl, Amanda Bierce, who was best known for going on to Fox's Married with Children as Marcy Darcy, she, she played Ragsdale's sexually repressed, uptight girlfriend, Amy. And again, this is a nod to the style of woman mentioned that I've said before. She's not so exciting herself until she's bit. And then Amy becomes a hellcat of a vampire. The climactic scene in the basement of Jerry's house has her trying to entice Charlie with her new sexual powers and sinfully asking him, what's the matter, Charlie? Don't you want me anymore? And for a moment, it looks like Charlie does want her until she shows that freaking face if you remember that at the end. Stephen Jeffries killed it with his evil egg character and and that's a, a direct nod to Renfield. And played at times for comic relief, but Jeffrey's deadly pathos after Ed gives in and takes Jerry's offer of eternal life is is fantastic. His confrontation with Vincent is classic and plays the psycho vampire henchman well. He gets credit with one of the most famous lines of the film. Oh, you're so cool, Brewster. And then we come to Chris Sarandon's vampire, Jerry Dandridge. And, and Dandridge is the stylish, updated vampire for the 80s. His long pleather, and that's right, pleather, plastic and leather gray trench coat stands in for Count Dracula's flowing cape. His perma-waved hair and his dark good looks are matched by a dark wit as he whistles strangers in the night. Jerry has fun with the old vampire myths, such as a vampire can't enter your home unless invited by the rightful owner. When Charlie comes downstairs to find his mother unwittingly invited a vampire into their home for a couple of drinks, Jerry responds with a line dripping with fun sarcasm. What's the matter, Charlie? Afraid I wouldn't come over without being invited? Another testament to the brilliance of the writing from Tom Holland's writing. My God, I love this movie. Chris Sarandon's vampire eats fresh fruit and takes time to dance seductively in a disco before absconding with Charlie's girl. He plays it right, going over the top when needed in scenes where Charlie thrusts a cross in his face and then subtle cool when getting inside Peter Vincent's head. It is clear Holland knows his horror, but he never becomes cynical to betray it for the sake of a buck. He never forsakes his material or the respect for the genre. He treats it with affection and made Fright Night with passion and childhood fondness. The same cannot be said for the 2011 remake. I read the script a year before the film was released and knew it was in trouble only 10 pages in. The 2011 film is slick. It boasts top-of-the-line CGI effects and has good performances, especially Colin Farrell's Jerry Dandridge. However, the film is hollow, and it's empty. And underneath its slick package, it's just an empty box. And I want to stop here for a moment to say that they made a sequel to 1985's Fright Night. In 1988, they made Fright Night 2 with Julie Carmen. And Julie Carmen plays Jerry Dandridge's sister. And Peter Vincent returns. Uh, Roddy McDowell is back. William Ragsdale returns as uh, Charlie Brewster. And if you have not seen this film, and it's hard to find this film because it got screwed in its distribution. It was directed by Tommy Lee Wallace and... The film got ripped off in its distribution for a number of reasons, which also involved the Menendez brothers and their slaying of their parents. However, Julie Carmen's vampire is 
fantastic. And Fright Night Part 2 in 1988 is more than a worthy successor. It is a fantastic film in its own right, and I highly recommend you try to get a really good copy of it. From what I understand, a really decent video translation of it is not out there, or it's really, really hard to find because most of the DVD copies are VHS rips with pan and scan. But if Scream Factory or somebody could figure out how to get the rights uh, to this film to do a decent Blu-ray 4K release, it would be awesome. So back to the 2011 Colin Farrell film. This was a remake for the sake of a remake. I mean, why call it Fright Night? Why not just make new character names and call it something else altogether, like, like I said with Godzilla? You see, that's cinema. You trade off the name brand recognition. You snag the old generation of fans who will hopefully bring their kids, and yet you snag a new generation that has no freaking clue about the original because it's old. The remake is built with ignorance as a key component. Peter Vincent means nothing in this film. In the 2011 version, he's some sort of low-rank Chris Angel and, and nothing more. His symbolism connects to nothing in the vampire genre, not literature, not, not even previous films. Vincent is a plot device and nothing more. Jerry Dandridge is still cool and sexy, but, but this time around there is a nod to the torture porn genres as Dandridge keeps his victims prisoner in cells inside his suburban home where, where they are subjected to horrors beyond our imagination. I mean, call me crazy, but keeping female victims prisoner in your suburban development home is not exactly the way to stay off the radar if you're a vampire who fears exposure. Evil Ed is now that sullen kid who many expect to quote-unquote go Columbine one day and is stripped of any significance to the vampire genre. He's just a loser kid. He's a friendless kid and and he has nothing to do with, with loving old vampire films. And, and Charlie is just Charlie. I mean, he's a nice guy, but a basic protagonist with little connection to the symbolism that spawned Ragsdale's Charlie Brewster. He has no connection or love to old horror films or, or Fright Night at all. And Amy this time around is just for window dressing. Fright Night 2011 had 3D thrown in as an extra gimmick in addition to the remake gimmick. And while it garnered generally, I guess, positive reviews, its box office was less than stellar. There's no connection with Fright Night, much like the audience it was targeted for. This new audience of filmgoers clamors for something new, but, but they really don't want that. So a remake gives the illusion something is new, but it really isn't. Remakes are safe. Not all remakes. Some are great, as we had said. Most of them are safe bets for a studio, and they're safe bets for an audience. So here's another question. So, so you thought the new Fright Night sucked and you hate remakes, right? No. I thought the new Fright Night was slick and well put together. However, it was not really Fright Night except in the name only. It brought nothing new, had no connection to the source material that spawned it, and it had nothing to say. It was a $10 distraction for a matinee and really nothing more. So I, so I hope I made my point using Fright Night. I mean, I don't hate remakes. I dislike why most of them are made. And I don't like that most people are ignorant to the original material and the importance of cultural history to the original films. Like, like I said, remakes like the 1979 Invasion of the Body Snatchers or, or even the 2006 King Kong with Peter Jackson are different than remakes like A Nightmare on Elm Street or Fright Night or even Let Me In. 
because they were remade with respect for the original material and were projects made with passion and zeal. The latter films were made to make a fast buck off a generation that doesn't know better and really doesn't want to. I'll end it with this. See the original 1985 Fright Night and be cool, Brewster. Check out my blog on horrorfuel.com and I really appreciate the time to listen all the way through. Looking forward to episode 13. Thanks again. Head on over to iTunes and give me a like and review. And if you want to read my cinema blog, you'll find it at horrorfuel.com forward slash author forward slash Harrison.